Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. If you've already watched the movie May December, you understand what it is we're playing right there. Or maybe you don't, actually. This is, well, we can talk about it a little bit as we go along here on the nose today. I, I will say that, no, I'll wait, I'll wait, never mind. It would be good if I started this show with some kind of plan that I was going to stick to, but I've already started fumbling and stumbling around here. This is the nose. With us today, Tanisha Dugan, associate producer at Octopus Theatricals. Uh, Lindsay Lee Wallace writes about culture, healthcare, and health equity and other stuff as well. Bill Usman is professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. He's already also someone who is fairly very, very proudly rejected the unrealistic standards of male beauty and now <laughs> wears, wears dresses with bare arms. Um, once again, if you saw May, December, that would be way funnier. Uh, so we are uh, going to talk, we're going to talk really today, I think, about two different, very, very different uh, productions, each of which I think is very heavily influenced by America's long time but also right now very highly focused, sort of high-grade, give-me-the-hard-stuff uh, fascination with true crime. Uh, in the second, seg- second segment, we'll talk about a John Lennon documentary that is essentially kind of a borderline cheesy true crime documentary, <laughs> which doesn't really seem particularly appropriate for John Lennon, but, but there you go. Uh, meanwhile, uh, May-December is directed by Todd, Todd Haynes. It is pretty clearly based on the story of Mary Kay Letourneau, uh, who uh, had an affair with a boy, uh, with a schoolboy. Uh, she was a teacher. Uh, she had uh, his first baby while waiting sentence. I mean, the the real story of Mary Kay Letourneau is actually slightly stranger than the plot of May-December. But uh, anyway, in in May-December, Julianne Moore plays Gracie, pretty much a sort of a version of Mary Kay Letourneau. She has had an affair with a boy. Uh, She has had his babies. She she has had his first baby while in prison for essentially sex abuse, which is kind of what the plot of this movie involves. Uh, and then uh, twins after that. Uh, there is a TV movie in the works about her. Long, long after the fact, there's a TV movie in the works. And an actress named Elizabeth, Elizabeth Berry, played by Natalie Portman, is, is there. To, she's going to study Julianne Moore and try to figure out how to become her, transform herself into uh, Julianne Moore's character, Gracie. Uh, the husband, who was formerly the guy who had just finished the seventh grade <laughs> and had a summer job in a pet store. Uh, it was played by Charles Melton. Last seen as Richie Manning, the bully on um, on Riverdale. Um, I should say also, Charles Melton has already picked up two of the early Best Supporting Actor Awards in the, the earliest of the film awards season uh, for his performance. All right. So we're going to get going here. Uh, and Lindsay Lee Wallace, I'll just sort of ha- – I mean, I guess we all have to take each other's temperatures a little bit uh, on, on the movie overall. And I think one of the questions we're all asking ourselves is how how much would should we be laughing 
at this. Todd Haynes often puzzles us a little bit this way. There's something, you know, almost undeniably funny about this movie, but I also think a lot of people would not find it funny. So maybe we should start there, Lindsay. Yeah, I think the, I mean, like there are these, there are these bizarre like moments of camera work, like, you know, an otherwise somber moment and suddenly like an intense push in. And then also the the music that you played in the beginning of the show, which is such a good example of how the the soundtrack of this film really like elevates moments and makes them bizarre and like creates tonal shifts that you maybe otherwise wouldn't have experienced. I feel like I've seen a lot of people say that this movie is really campy, which is like, I I can see that, but I also don't think it's quite as campy or hilarious as a lot of people seem to think. I feel like a lot of the most horrific, tragic things, the people who experience them find some kind of dark humor in them. And in this story, that is like very much about like perception and retellings and like how we tell stories to ourselves to be able to cope with them. The idea of like sort of that hysteria coming out in the way the film is made is apparent. There are moments like when uh, Charles Melton is smoking pot for the first time with his son on the roof of the house that are just like, this is an inherently hilarious situation, but it's also actually heartbreaking and devastating. And that's how the humor of this movie came across to me. Yeah, I mean, I think it signals some of its comic intentions early on. Uh, there's a moment where Gracie is standing in her kitchen, her rather expensive looking kitchen, mostly paid for, I think, by selling the rights to her story over and over again. Um, but uh, she, she, that ominous music, and I want to talk about that music at some point, but that ba-dum uh, plays and as she's opening the refrigerator door, ba-dum, and then she says very ominously, I don't think we have enough hot dogs. Um, and I'm thinking, okay. And then it cuts to just a grill with like 25 right. hot dogs yeah, on exactly. it. And you're like, my God, what would be enough hot right. dogs? And are we really talking? Sometimes a hot dog is just a hot dog, but sometimes it isn't. <laughs> um, so, uh, so Bill, since you, uh, you're you chuckling there, uh, yeah, I, I want to hear you out on this too. And uh, then Tanisha, and we'll play a little clip to the uh, from the movie after we've kind of gone around the table once. But you have the floor, Mr. Usman. I like the the film a lot. Uh, I'm a Todd Haynes fan. Uh, I'm particularly a fan of his melodramas um, like Carol and Far From Heaven. And this one certainly fits into that mix. I initially uh, really liked it. And actually, it's one of those films where the more I think about it, the more I like it and the more I start to think about the depths of it. I had not thought of it as a comedy because of you know what the story really is about which well it's actually about two things uh, one is you know the 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 assault really i mean i don't think there's any you know he was in 7th grade which they make like a real point at at one point elizabeth says you know just after 6th grade and both of them in unison say 7th grade yeah. as if that makes a difference mm. Right. Right. Um, but then it's also about the predatory nature of the film industry and, you know, the way Elizabeth really does enter into this triad and she is predatory in her own way in terms of how she's she's trying to exploit this situation. So I, I didn't think of it as a comedy, but actually now the more. I hear people talking about that and the more I reflect on it, it really does have some of those elements to it. And it does make the music make more sense to me as, as more than just sort of overblown, 
in, in, in how I originally reacted to it. Yeah, let me just quickly take this opportunity to say that the music is actually from a 1971 movie called The Go-Between, um, which is actually about um, adults having a sexual affair and ruining the life of a, of a very young boy uh, in the process. Uh, I think that's quite intentional. <laughs> but so anyway, that little piano lick that you keep hearing over and over again, that's, I think, Michelle Legrand's uh, composition. Uh, and and I think this is one of Todd Haynes's many little inside jokes. So, um, Tanisha, uh, you have the floor now. I mean, maybe you start with that whole question of comedy or not, but then go over wherever your heart takes you. I love it. Uh, I would say hard no to comedy, even though I understand why we talk about things as comedy, because we're like, oh, my God, if we say it's a drama or if we say it's thought provoking, the people won't show up in these times. So are there moments where it's funny? Sure. But it's like life in that way. There's some things that are funny. Um, but it is not like a laugh riot of a of a movie. And I suspect that some of that is that like tonally, the subject matter is one that folks don't quite know how to handle and that discomfort can lead to some laughter, a la the hot dog moment, right? Like what are what are we trying to say here? Are we are we insinuating something about this woman and her uh appetites in all the ways or or is it just a hot dog i don't know um i you know love the sort of easter egg of the of the music that you've just shared colin mm. uh, because there's there's something about this story and it being sort of set up as this woman this very talented and accomplished by by virtue of where she went to school woman studying to to play this role for a tv movie uh which i think is is really an interesting frame considering the kinds of stories that end up on a tv movie and to think about todd sort of employing very uh high art um strategies to tell the story is a really interesting sort of rub in opposition to the way in which these movies are typically handled um, and so that, to me, I guess, sort of connecting to what you've said, Bill, the the sort of real interesting piece for me was how do how does Hollywood decide to tell, quote unquote, our stories, who gets what treatment of those stories and how fascinating is it that this movie, May, December, sort of tackles all of those ideas in one, which is quite ambitious for for what it is. Can I, can I just say, Tanisha, that um, I think one of the really funny things in this movie, I think Natalie Portman is really funny in this movie. And, and I, I, I think it's, she does a lot of brave things to be really funny. And I think part of the thing that's thing, one of the things that's funny is you get the feeling she's not a very good actor and she's not associated with a lot of prestige products, uh, uh, projects. I mean, one of the guests at the barbecue has Googled Elizabeth Berry naked so he could watch some really kind of trashy movie she's been in. But Tisha, that moment, we, okay, so she goes into, I'm, there's no spoilers. So you don't have to, we won't spoil anything. But she goes to visit the pet shop where both uh, Gracie, uh, Julianne Moore, uh, and, and the boy worked together and where their affair started. She goes, she has to go into the storeroom, which is the place that they were eventually caught, flagrante delicto. 
But do you, do you remember she kind of sinks down onto this step <laughs> and kind of spreads her legs, and then she starts making out with her hands. Uh, <laughs> at that point, I thought, how could this be anything other than just this grotesque comic performance? It just I, and yeah. I think it's because of the kind of audience person I am. Right? I have taught in these conservatories. I have directed in these conservatories. I understand, I went to one of these conservatories. So I, it's not funny. I, I mean, I can see why it's funny. It is funny, but it's also like so real to the process. Yeah. So I don't even get to the comedy. Cause I'm like, exactly. That's exactly how, how you study. That's exactly how you, uh, Prepare. That's exactly how you research. I'm picturing, so, I'm picturing James Lipton. To school, I was like, of course. Yeah. I'm picturing James Lipton saying, oh, now everyone make out with their hands. Um, all right. <laughs> she's, so, a re- she's a, re- she's a ridiculous. In acting school. <laughs> so she's a ridiculous character, but she's also quite disturbed, yes. I think. I think she's, first of all, I think they all give great performances. I love Portman. Uh, Pants wants us to play a clip. We should do it right now. This is from May, December. You will hear Natalie Portman as Elizabeth, Charles Milton as John, uh, Joe Yu, uh, and Julianne Moore as Gracie Atherton Yu. Do you remember when you first met? I don't really. I don't know. Let me see. Um, I met Joe. Um, well, I remember knowing of his family. I mean, they were the only Korean family in the neighborhood at the time. Yes. And my son, Georgie, was in the same year as Joe at school. So technically, I would have met him there, but I don't have any memory of that. Right. Um, Everyone's pretty close-knit here on the island, and you kind of recognize everyone. I know there was a point when he was friendlier with Georgie, but I didn't really meet him until he came to the pet store looking for a job. It was summer after sixth grade? Seventh. And then he started working there after school and on the weekends. And what's it like with Georgie, your your friendship? I haven't really talked to Georgie much since then. Georgie's very sensitive. He always was very, very sensitive. What's your relationship like with him and, and your other kids? How is that relevant? Um, <laughs> it's my understanding that the movie takes place between 1992 and 1994. Am I wrong? So why would you need to know anything that happened after that? Um, first of all, could I just say to my fellow, to my nose panelists, I could talk about this movie for hours. I need to join a group. There's like a, I hate groups, but I, I would join a group that met on Tuesday nights in a bar somewhere and we just talked about me December every week. Um, I, 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 I would be happy to be in that group as well. I feel like I could talk about this movie for the entire rest of the day. And so, Lindsay, you know, that last part there um, is interesting too because Gracie, when she says, it's my understanding that the movie takes place between 92 and 94, am I wrong? Why would you need to know anything essentially before or after that. <laughs> uh, and and this is the beginning of her sense that she can control the narrative. If she can, I mean, that's been sort of how she's gotten through her life, I think, is packaging things up, compartmentalizing stuff. If it's just 92 to 94, we'll only get into a certain amount of things and maybe not some of the other things. And I know, Lindsay, that this is something that you're, you thought a little bit about, too, about how women... Uh, in particular, who have been characterized in certain ways by the press, either can be re- rehabilitated, can't be rehabilitated, or um, try to control a reevaluation of themselves. But I'd love to hear you say some stuff about that. Yeah, I think it reminded me a lot about 
this era that I feel like we've been in for a while now of sort of like reevaluating, reclaiming, rehabilitating, like you said, maligned women from pop culture history. And like the most obvious example that I can think of is Britney Spears, who was treated just like abhorrently by the press and by the industry she was in and by her own family. And like she was this insane bimbo when in fact she was being like systematically stripped of her right to self-determination despite being one of the most powerful and wealthy women and in the last few years with the free britney movement there has been this understanding of you know oh there was a lot of misogyny to that interpretation and there was a lot of exploitation and in her case there was a legal framework that upheld those things but in the case of many women that is just like the incredible force of our culture and i also think that as that has played out and there have been more and more people that we have revisited the stories of, there has also been like a, you know, like a, like a pop culture industrial complex that's risen up around that idea in the same way that there kind of is around everything that starts out sincere and becomes like, oh, this is profitable. We should keep doing this. And it is, you know, it feels in line with that for this film to have been made about this real story of, of Mary Kay Letourneau and Billy Fallow, who, you know, I have no idea if he had anything to do with this movie, even though it very much does seem to be about his life. Um, and I think that Elizabeth's character is a really good encapsulation of that structure saying, you know, okay, I'm here, I'm looking for the truth, I'm looking for the nuance. And, you know, there is there is value to revisiting a story just to, just to have a more nuanced understanding of it, even to arrive at the same conclusion of, you know, what she did was abhorrent, what what Gracie did to Joe, what Mary Kay Letourneau did to Billy Fallow is assault and it's unforgivable. It's valuable to reevaluate a story and see the angles of it and still arrive at the same conclusion. But in the case of May, December, it really, it feels like Elizabeth's intention is just to get her claws in to become more well-known for how interestingly she reevaluated this woman which is not at all in the spirit of this original movement to reevaluate maligned women and it's interesting to see even something that is supposed to be sincere become just another pipeline yeah so you know um tanisha i want to return to the whole question of acting uh and apologize for making a james lipton joke um but this this is <laughs> this is about this kind of almost lamprey like suction, you know, that that maybe actors do on their subjects. It's also, I think, very much a movie in which everybody is acting. Um, you know, Joe might be the only person who does who's not self aware enough to be able to be acting. But Gracie is clearly acting, um, and and Elizabeth is acting all over the place. I mean, she, it turns out she is sort of engaged to somebody that she apparently doesn't even like very much and makes excuses to hang up on him, uh, and maybe having an affair, it seems, with the guy who's going to direct this TV project. And I mean, she is an actor studying another subject to act that role, but she's also just acting a lot all the way through. Um, and, and to, you know, this is, we are surrounded by mirrors all the time in this movie. There are elements of Bergman's persona in it. There's elements of, uh, uh, of Altman's three women, uh, this whole idea of becoming another person. And just with your profession and background, I, I mean, I don't know, do you get any specific takeaway about acting from this whole story? I mean, I love I love sort of what you've offered of, of Elizabeth sort of always acting. And I would say that, like, being an actor is a personality and a craft and a profession. Um, and it, you know, I, I think we're coming away from a time, you know, I came up on Stanislavski, right? Like, now that is like a nap. I came up on 
on method. Now you can't say it because you know, God forbid the children will lose their minds if they if they dive too deeply into character. And so this entire movie was really, to me, a sort of a tribute and a callback to that kind of training that we don't really teach kids anymore. Um, because bef- for all of the health and, and wellness and safety reasons. Um, but there's something, you know, very nostalgic to me about it all, but also something, I mean, quite crazy. And I think that's why people both love and and can't stand artists, but actors in particular, because I mean, it is a little insane to sort of follow a person. It's a little insane to step inside of that life in the way that uh, Elizabeth does in this movie. But I, I couldn't tell you that that's not something that many, I mean, that is that is the Daniel Day-Lewis uh, school of acting, right? That <laughs> yeah. is that is what it is, right? So we, um, we, yeah. I also it makes me want to see, which I didn't see. I had no interest in it at the time. Portman's portrayal of Jackie Kennedy, Jackie Onassis, the movie Jackie. Mm-hmm. I, I want to see if she did that. You know, I mean, like how much of Portman is in this weird portrayal of, of Elizabeth. And how much is not? I mean, what you talk about mirrors and there's this, what I think is my favorite scene is this monologue that she's doing either to the camera or to a mirror where she's basically doing Julianne Moore, doing Mary Kay Letourneau. And it's, it's stunning. It's, right. it's truly remarkable. It's the, that's the moment where you think, maybe she is a good actor. Um, so, Bill, we have to take a moment, you and me as guys, uh, have to take a moment and talk about Charles Melton, <laughs> talk about the character Joe, who... I mean, this is a pretty interesting performance, and he it's an interesting character, too. I don't know what Vili Falau uh, was like, but Joe here, he's kind of still a seventh grader <laughs> emotionally, but in a dad bod, you know? And he, like, he's, he wound up married to this woman who just makes cakes all day long, as far as I can tell, uh, quite a few of which he has to eat. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, there's... There, there is this kind of scent, and he, there's this heavy-handed metaphor. He's obsessed with the chrysalis and the butterfly, and but I don't know. What did you make of this performance? Well, you know, uh, true confession. I've watched every episode of Riverdale mm. uh, because my wife uh, is a expert in teen television and, uh, sure, so blame it on your wife. <laughs> well, you know, she drags me right along with her and it was a completely and totally unhinged show where everybody was a cartoon, uh, like you might expect based on a comic book, but taking it into, uh, ridiculous realms. And so, you know, I think part of why uh melton is is getting such rave reviews not that he doesn't deserve them but it was sort of like oh the guy from riverdale can actually do this can actually act and i do think he he pulls it off really well and he's you know he 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 inhabits this this person who has had something taken out of them taken out of their core what what happened to him really did you know, it, it destroyed his youth and it has left him in this sort of very liminal state of whether he's a father or still a child and, and what role does he play in this family, which also has a liminal relationship to their community where they're sort of accepted, but still sort of pariahs. And and he's just, the, the film looks like it's in a gauze. It looks like in a, it's in a haze. And he himself is just kind of, in this haze, I think acting 
like we like you all were just talking about as this person but just left in this very bewildered state and and i think he inhabits that bewilderment really really well uh tanisha or Lindsay, do you want to make a comment or two on joe and then we have to take a break probably i love i love the character of joe i love what uh the actor does with joe especially because to your point, Lindsay, I'm curious about what Villy, where Villy is, how he, what he's turned into. And I did totally go down a Mary Kay Letourneau, <laughs> Villy Falau, uh rabbit hole after I watched this. And I found that some of the text from the script are, is like direct from interviews the two of them have given. And I think there's something really interesting about him being trapped as his seventh grade self and, and the heartbreak um, of that. Yeah, I feel like the physicality that he brought to it, the like standing with your belly out sort of like like a little kid does, it felt really like arrested in in his emotions as well, which was interesting because I feel like um obviously yes, he's getting a lot of a lot of reviews about how well he did and I totally agree with that, but it's so interesting because a lot of I felt like the choices he made reminded me of like watching a child react to things and it's weird to see that on an adult's face and it like makes it kind of disjointed when I think about like ooh, a really incredible subtle performance it's not necessarily like an adult who is either like completely stoic or like breaking down but that was like obviously a very deliberate choice as the result of the age at which this character was arrested so it was interesting to watch absolutely um i i first of all i do want to just as we end say this is a movie that rewards the second viewing it's really worth watching twice and you can watch it on netflix you're not going to cost you anything but i started watching it again this morning and i thought oh there's a lot here i'm missing and i also want to say like so much happens in the first five minutes of this movie including after the whole hot dog thing uh natalie portman shows uh, them a box that she's a wrapped up you know delivered box that's she's found on their lawn and they tell her it's full of poop uh, or as actually as Gracie says, it's full of S-H-I-T. That's what she says. But the, the thing that I love is that Joe has hand sanitizer on his person. He goes, this isn't happening that often anymore. But he's got a little spray bottle of hand sanitizer for everybody who handled the box. <laughs> There's a drill. They've got a drill for when the box of poop comes. Anyway, we have to take a quick break. We're going to talk about John Lennon on the other side. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health.
I've actually had this song stuck in my head for three weeks. I mean, not continuously, but it's been around a lot. We're going to, we're going to talk about John Lennon, Murder Without a Trial. Uh, it is on Apple+. Plus. I actually find that significant. I'll tell you why later. Um, let's play a clip before we get the panel going on this. Uh, you're going to hear it's a three-episode documentary um, really about the shooting uh, of John Lennon and then the aftermath uh, of that, which, by the way, John Lennon died exactly 43 years ago today, December 8th, 1980. Um, and... As you will hear, because he's very Kiefer Sutherland all the way through, this is narrated by Kiefer Sutherland. On the 8th of December, 1980, John Lennon was murdered outside his home in New York City. All right, everybody on the other side of the street, come on. Incredibly, for a crime of this magnitude, the case never went to trial. Jury selection was supposed to begin today, but once inside the courtroom, it was clear there would be no jury trial. So the facts of what happened have never been publicly established. You see, the whole world knows who John Lennon was, and now we're trying to get our grips. We're trying to get a picture of his alleged killer. And where there's darkness, conspiracy theories have grown. These FBI files clearly reveal Lennon was considered a political threat. Steps were taken on the highest level to do something about the Lenin problem. Now, after 40 years, witnesses speak for the very first time. Time's passed. Put it on the record. I don't know. Once I'm done. Ultimately, it's a journey into the mind of a murderer. In the case of the assassination of a musical genius and one of the most outspoken peace campaigners the world has ever seen. Nobody's ever given peace a complete chance. Gandhi tried it, Martin Luther King tried it, but they were shot. And there's, this is sort of from the beginning. And you could make the case that if you just watch that 90, 90 seconds, you're pretty much done. Um, yeah. But, um, but Tanisha, you know, it's weird because the, I think there's a musical bridge between May, December uh, and this Lennon documentary. And it's the, it's the music. It's the sound of Dateline, you know, NBC Dateline and Unsolved Mysteries. And, you know, there's kind of a sound to that because to Lindsay's earlier point, this is very much something that we, the public, feed on these days. And we kind of know what it's supposed to sound like and what it's supposed to look like. And I just found Lennon an uneasy fit with that particular format, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, it definitely is is giving uh, true crime. It is giving uh, not first 48, but you know, it's 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 giving us those those uh tropes. Um I happen to sit in a really weird and narrow segment of culture that did not really like my my parents didn't listen to the Beatles. It was not a part of the background of my life. I don't have like a a deep connection to John Lennon. So I was sort of looking forward to learning more about 
the back half of his life and how he died. And I, and to your point, yes, the 90 seconds we just listened to is, is it. Um, and I think that there's a grander context because while I didn't listen to the music, I knew who he was. I knew who this band was. I understood that I, sh- that the fact that I didn't know this music was made me an outlier, not sort of one as a part of like the, the grander zeitgeist. So I think for me, I, you know, and I also was naive. I didn't look ahead to think that there was, you know, I assumed it was like an eight part series. So I was like, oh, next week I'll get to catch, you know, the sort of um, uh, the analysis behind this, this, this murder and, and how, you know, is there participation of the, you know, I was, I was considering more Kennedy, MLK, Malcolm X, uh, conspiracy theory, um, aspects to this than I got. Um, and I won't step on Lindsay's analysis. Um, but I think there's something really interesting about the folks that they did bring to the table to tell the story and the ways in which that they uh, presented them made John's death feel far more pedestrian than I think it deserved. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know, Bill, if that's exactly... I mean, I think we all wanted more than we got. Uh, and there are different ways that we could have gotten more than what we got. Um uh, I think you and I, Bill, have to have yet another one of our private moments because we both watch <laughs> For All Mankind, along with your reluctant Riverdale worshiping wife who uh, was forced into watching For All Mankind, which is an alternative. And is now a convert, yes. by the way. Oh, I, that was Loves just, it. That almost went without saying. Um, yeah. And But th- this is an alternative history mainly of the space program, but it's an alternative history also of uh, of that era of 70s, 80s, 90s, well, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and going forward. But one of the things that's different is that Lenin isn't dead. And it's not a huge plot point, and it's not something they hit us over the head with a lot. But you're just aware of the fact that our our shared reality would be different and probably better if Lenin were alive doing his running commentary, both spoken and sung. And, and really, that little thing at the beginning about love and peace and these other guys got shot— that's kind of the Lenin that I almost wish was a little bit more present in this, but obviously that's not their agenda. No, and I think you know what it it raises the question of what is their agenda? And you know, uh, Tanisha started to touch on this that it's you know, I hate to pull out like that that overused Gertrude Stein quote, but there is no there there or at least there's not very much there there it it opens up all these little passages but it never goes down them so it starts talking about you know the CIA's mind control experiments MK ultra and whether you know Chapman was hypnotized and and all these conspiracy theories related to that but then that never goes anywhere and then they start talking about issues of redemption uh, whether there is ever, you know, redemption for someone who has done such a horrible thing that never goes anywhere. It just, it's all these little threads that are never woven together into any kind of whole cloth. You said in our first episode that you could imagine meeting with people and talking about May, December, you know, for several <laughs> weeks. And, and I agree with that because it's a, it's a text that has so much depth to it. I couldn't meet with people to talk about this for more than 10 minutes, really, because there just is, I don't think, any depth. And I think as Tanisha alluded to, it's a real missed opportunity. 
Yes, absolutely. So, Lindsay, I know, uh, and apparently we're going to be meeting in New York um, to talk about May, December, but before our <laughs> meetings, you're going to go jogging by the Dakota. This is something that you've been doing lately. So, I don't know. I, I, you're, you're the youngest of us by far, I think. So, tell us how all this is landing. Well, it's funny that you should mention that because the biggest thing, the biggest revelation that I had from watching this is that the building that I thought was the Dakota isn't the Dakota. So <laughs> I have been jogging by some other random building and then every time I pass it, yeah, so, I've been thinking and, to myself, oh, that's where John Lennon died. Yeah, no, and, and, you, and you've, been in, you've been jogging in North Dakota, which was your big mistake. But anyway. Yeah, which is, I'm, so I'm an cold. ultra marathon runner now, which yeah. is great, but um, <laughs> still have not visited that site. Um, yeah, I... I like feel very similarly to Tanisha in that I like I I understand like the the cultural importance and legacy of the Beatles and like I think that probably their music was like a little bit more a part of my life but not in a not in a major way um and so I was thinking as I was watching this you know if this were an artist I adored and I had never totally understood his death then I would probably be enraptured by this format of just like every little memory that anyone they could find has but it it just felt very and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened and it was you know the same moments being retold by people without much of a an overarching framework or an attempt to make a point um and it was very much like a lot of old policemen in bars and diners like sipping whiskey <laughs> or coffee telling you you know oh he was really stout the killer he was really a stout guy and i i was failing to understand what the like as we've talked about what the documentarians intentions were or like what sort of what they wanted to add to the conversation beyond just being like look we've gotten people to tell you minute random details that you probably hadn't heard before and i think that there is like that's the kind of thing that i am interested in sometimes when it's about something that i care about but in this case i sort of saw it laid bare for being not particularly productive and especially you know, tying it to to the MK Ultra stuff and these conspiracy theories is like, I want you to tell me why the conspiracy theories took root. I want you to investigate them for me beyond what was believed at the time and the cultural impact of those things. And it was weird. It was like they almost didn't know why they were making this. So, yeah, you know, speaking, Tanisha, of those old policemen, I do feel like if there's anybody, one of the people who occasionally starts to almost redeem this thing is the lead cop. I don't know what his name is, but he's he's an old policeman. He's a lead cop. And he's such a New York guy, you know? I mean, I, I think of a friend of mine, lifelong New Yorker, who was walking to work one day, and there was a, a cop on a horse and some sawhorses up on the street that he usually takes. And he looked up at the cop and he went, what is it? And the cop went, president. <laughs> You know, it's like the, the president of the United States is in New York. Who cares? The, they just blocked 40 seconds. Um, so and and there's the cop is kind of like that. Right. Tanisha, he's go. Well, I never told anybody this, but I didn't read Catcher in the Rye. Everybody else read Catcher in the Rye. And here's this other speech. That he, makes. he goes. So they got a psychiatrist to say that he was crazy. So we got a psychiatrist to say he wasn't crazy. So they got another psychiatrist to see. <laughs> And I thought, I just want, I want Tanisha, I want to see that guy's show. He should get his own show out of this. Yeah, exactly. I want him to to reveal all of the true crimes that we think are like, I mean, maybe he can help us answer some of the Diddy questions. That's what I want to see. Uh, but yeah. I, I never I, listened know. to his music. I never listened to any of that music. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Continue. And also that guy is me and, and I am that guy. Um, yeah, you know. It, 
what's what's so great about New Yorkers and what I love about how you you know you bring up like oh my god 42nd Street is closed mm-hmm. is that like that is kind of how I feel about about I was gonna call him Bob Dylan which just tells you what kind of mind <laughs> help me um that that John Lennon, John Lennon John is, Lennon. Just, <laughs> is just like a guy you know and like you know I think there was this part where somebody says spoiler alert excuse me oh it, you know it was you know I'm sorry or I guess no the killer says this I'm sorry for ruining your life your your night right and and the cop is like you just ruined your life you know like it's it's just so such a pedestrian story in in a city of that size where murder is not an uncommon uh neighborhood phenomenon to hear it treated by one of the characters in that way is one of the great delights. Um, and I and I do wish that the documentarians had spent a little more time like asking and probing this guy because he is so entertaining, but also there's gotta be a reason, right? <laughs> that it's like, we're just gonna go back and forth on the on the on the crazy tip because that, you know, we're not gonna mm-hmm. look deeper than he's crazy and we need to prove that he's crazy knowing that adjacent to this is an entire case in which that was decided almost immediately. Right. Um, it, it is quite curious uh, the choices that, that our filmmakers make about who, who they ask questions. To. I mean, I love the cab driver, you know, the sort of like yeah, classic <laughs> New York uh, personality, you know, the cab driver is like, I thought we were watching a movie, but there's no cameras. And you're like, Tell me more. Right. Tell me more. And, and about as a New York cab that. driver, he would know to look for the lights and stuff too. That, I mean, right, exactly. I, exactly. I actually, I think, Bill, the first episode of this is actually the. It's if there's a good episode of the three, it's that one. It's New Yorkers. It's the That's ER. Right. The ER team thinking, wait a minute, are we working on John Lennon? Is that who's on this table? Which is, you know, I don't know. Some of those dissonances, Bill, I think were actually kind of good, or interesting anyway. Yeah, I mean, there are some interesting elements to it. It's just that that's never, like, they could never decide what their focus is, what their focus was going to be, uh, because there are those pieces. I was also taken by, um, you know, I think there's also something interesting more that they could have done with the with the public outpouring of grief. Um, Definitely, Lori and I happened at the same time we're we're watching uh the newest uh season of the crown which deals with diana's death and so i couldn't help but think right about the the reactions to diana's death and the reactions to john lennon's death and and what is that psychology what is it that makes us have you know these parasocial relationships with these huge huge totemic figures that would actually get people to pour into the streets and to sing and to and to have these vigils that's also something uh really interesting that could have been explored more Mm. but it's just these little pieces you know it's a jigsaw puzzle that they never put together and that's because i don't think they know what Mm. the final picture they were trying to put together was. Okay, so we're a little bit behind on the clock, and I have something important to tell all of you. But, Lindsay, did you want to say something about outpourings of grief? Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, Just, I think that, like, we are, there have been so many significant moments of outpourings of grief in recent years that there was a really big missed opportunity to connect this to the conversations about parasocial relationships that we have now with social media and to the outpourings of grief around COVID and around the summer of 2020 and around things that are happening Mm -hmm. in the world right now. Mm -hmm. And it's a strange choice almost to not 
to not like connect with that in a modern way. It, it felt like they just found everybody whose cocktail party story is I was in some way involved hmm. in John Lennon's death and got them to tell all those stories. Yeah. So I have to say that there's uh, quite a bit uh, at the courthouse at the time that Mark David Chapman's supposed to go on trial. Uh, and you see on the day the trial is supposed to begin, all these reporters backed up in a hallway. Uh, and ultimately, they find out after about 90 minutes of waiting that there's not going to be a trial because while they were backed up in the hallway, uh, a plea agreement was worked out. And so when that was happening, I got up and I walked over and stood really close to the TV and looked very carefully. And then I said to my partner, I'm looking for myself because I was in the hallway. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And I didn't see myself. I might have talked to ER Ship, though. I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. The early 80s was a really weird time, but I was there covering. I was supposed to spend, you know, weeks covering the trial of Mark David Chapman. Then it was all all over. Huh. We all had to go home. Anyway, uh, we're going to take a quick break and we will come back and we will make some recommendations. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Nothing you can say but you can learn how to play the game. We're back real fast because I screwed up the clock. Uh, Kat Pastors, our technical producer today. Jonathan McPants is the producer of The Nose. Now time for recommendations. We've got about five minutes to do the whole thing. So Bill Usman, get us started. I'll try to be really quick. Norman Lear passed away at 101 this week. One of the truly transformative auteurs in television history. And so my endorsement is there's a 2016 episode of American Masters called Norman Lear just another version of you about his life and accomplishments definitely worth watching and by the way a connecticut native and a graduate of weaver high school right so that's online and then my second quickly is uh in partnership with uh jonathan mcnichol we were both excited this week to get the brand new album from peter gabriel called io it's his first album uh in over 20 years and i think in some ways he hasn't really lost a step at Mm. all so you'll be bringing your boom back boombox back to the house and serenading, holding Lori it over my head, us, uh, getting Lori to yeah. forgive you for whatever you've done recently. Um, many, many things. Yes, uh, Tanisha, how about you? What do you want to recommend? I'm going to recommend Vibe Check. It's a podcast uh, with uh, Sam Sanders, Saeed Jones, Zach Stafford. I got put onto it by Yaba Blay this week, who was sort of positing uh, our responsibility in questioning uh, those icons, those celebrities that we adore. Uh, this week's podcast takes a dive into the uh, the Queen Bee um, and then all of the things that are going on. I think it's good that we sort of... Uh, Ask some questions of, of the folks that uh, hold high regard in our celebrity. See the name of the podcast again? Vibe Check. Oh, Vibe Check. Okay. I'm going to check that out. That sounds really great. I, and I, I enjoy Sam. Um, all right. Uh, Lindsay, uh, you're next. You, you know, you have time. You don't have to. They, they were so economical. You have a little bit of time to spread out if you need to. You're That's well. a relief. Thank you. Thank you have you. a minute is um, what Emily said. <laughs> okay. Uh, my first recommendation is extremely, uh, everyone already knows about When Harry Met Sally, but I didn't, and I saw it for the first time. Everyone should watch it. Don't know what I was waiting for. Great film. Um, my other recommendation is Freedom is a Constant Struggle, Ferguson, Palestine, and the Foundations of a Movement by Angela Davis, mm-hmm. which is a great book for understanding yeah. the world right now. Well, that was really, really fast. Um 
Yeah, no, and now we can tell you it's Rob Reiner's mother who says, I'll, I'll have what she's having. Um, that's really true, though. His mother is the one who says, he, that's like one of her big acting jobs was doing that. Um, all right, so I guess what I, I'm only going to recommend one thing, which is, and you can go, to, we could do this the easy way or we could do this the hard way as that cop. That, that cop in the documentary, we could do this the easy way or we could do this the hard way, all right? Uh, so you have two choices. You can just start watching the, since you're already going to get Apple Plus because of all the stuff that we talked about, um, because of the Lenin thing anyway, um, you can start watching the third season of Slow Horses. And even if you haven't seen the first two seasons, it won't matter. You'll be fine. Um but you should really probably watch from the beginning. I, I, I actually, if there's a better show on television right now, I do not know what it is. Um, and I think Gary Oldman is just giving this off the charts kind of performance that is the funniest I've ever seen him be. But also he's deadly serious underneath being funny. He has said that he will be available to do as many seasons as they want to do it. I mean, if he can fit it into a schedule, he's, he wants to do more. Uh, the supporting cast is also just terrific. And the writing and the directing are so tight. I watched the first two episodes, and I never do this. And I, I just sat down and rewatched the first two episodes <laughs> to get ready for the third episode, which is now dropped. Um, and it's so tight and so fast and so good, and you're so angry when the episodes are over. And so mad that you have to wait another week. <laughs> they, they could probably have people swipe their credit cards, you know, and for 10 bucks, give them episode four. Uh, but anyway, it's really terrific. I want to thank also this wonderful, wonderful uh, panel here. Uh, and uh, so, and by name, Tanisha Duke, an associate professor, producer at Octopus Theatricals. Lindsay Lee Wallace uh, writes about culture, healthcare, and health equity. Bill Usman, professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. We got to go. Down on a silent, across from St. Francis, past the conservatory, up the street from the seminary. You know, it's a very, very, very cool place to hang out. Yeah. <laughs> it's cozy, like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, we all be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this and talking about that. Talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington. Yeah, 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 yeah.